This is Finding Center, a daily half hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Connecting with Heaven. Marilyn W. Barrett, a professor in the BYU Department of Dance when this address was given, will give her devotional entitled Earnest Prayer. It is a singular honor to be with you today, and I pray that this morning we will feel the Spirit instructing us in our collective and individual needs. I know those of you who know me may be expecting me to talk about dance or children or education, and I am very passionate about those things. I would love to sit down with you and talk about them sometime. Perhaps you're expecting I will share some of the inspirational experiences I've had with some very unselfish BYU students who reach out to children in schools and touch their lives in ways that are so satisfying. But these simply are not the messages the Lord would have me share with you today. Now, I know it is traditional to conclude a talk or lesson with personal testimony. But as I begin this devotional address today, I would like to start with my testimony of prayer. I know that God hears and answers our prayers and testify that the act of praying changes us. My testimony of prayer began as a child as I learned to pray from my sweet mother, mom who passed away just one year and one week ago at the age of 89 was a lifelong example of sincere prayer. As a single mother raising seven children, she never doubted that praying was one of her greatest assets. I am so grateful for her patient teaching and reminding throughout my life. She often asked, Marilyn, have you said your prayers? I remember the winter mornings when Mother would drive us to school. Neighborhood friends often gathered at our house to go with us. Mormon and non-Mormon alike were invited to crowd into our front room next to the old upright piano and faded green couch. We would kneel in family prayer with our friends before piling into our blue Plymouth to swoosh down the unplowed snowy roads on our way to West Jordan Junior High School. No matter the season, we never left the house without first invoking the blessings of protection from our Father in Heaven. Nor did we miss very many evening prayers. Mother guided us in opening and closing the day with family prayer. I also remember seeing her kneel next to her bed as I was growing up, as she sought the strength and insight she knew prayer provided. And I never saw her eat anything without first insisting on a blessing. During the last few years, she grew very forgetful, but never about prayer. Speaking to our Heavenly Father was so deeply a part of her that prayers and blessings were never forgotten. If she forgot anything, it was that we had already blessed the food, so our meals together were sometimes doubly blessed. (laughs) My testimony of prayer began, as many of our greatest life lessons do, with the example of a faithful parent, in my case my mother, who taught and encouraged from the earliest days I can recall. The best lessons, of course, are the lessons of example. She always prayed. But my own testimony of meaningful personal prayer deepened only through practicing it. Like Enos who said, And my soul hungered, and I kneeled down before my Maker, and I cried unto Him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto Him, yea, and when the night came, I did still raise my voice high, that it reached the heavens. That scriptural passage gives reinforcement and instruction. 
about three principles I have found important for accessing the peace and power of meaningful personal prayer. These lessons from Enos are first, Enos hungered. How was it that Enos hungered? He was out hunting, but it was not physical hunger he felt as he recalled the words of his father and the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart. And I will tell you of the wrestle which I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins, and my soul hungered. Enos was in need of change, in need of repentance. He was hungry for spiritual peace, eternal assurance, and joy. This hunger can be likened to praying with the kind of firm faith and real intent that we read about in Moroni and have been counseled to pursue from modern-day apostle Russell M. Nelson. To access information from heaven, one must first have a firm faith and a deep desire. One needs to ask with sincere heart and real intent, having faith in Jesus Christ. Real intent means that one really intends to follow the divine direction given. What do you hunger for? What do you need? Each family responsibility and church calling I have been blessed with and challenged by has prompted prayers of great need in my life. So has my work and stewardship at BYU. So we share something, two of our most universal needs that we all share in common. First, the need to personally change, to repent, examine, and second, the responsibility and concern we have for others, our stewardships, callings, and work. I'd like to share two examples that taught me about accessing the power of prayer in those two kinds of times of need. The first lesson came from my sister Anne. She had heard me complain at length about a particularly difficult situation I was having with a person I felt had wronged me and who seemed to take delight in seeing me struggle. This situation was consuming me. I was angry and frustrated. Anne suggested that I rethink my victim role and instead follow the admonition from the scriptures in Matthew 5 and 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Anne shared a specific strategy that at first was very hard, but I accepted her challenge to pray sincerely every day for 30 days that this individual, my enemy, would have all the best things in life that I would want for myself and my own family. She reminded me that the keys were to be sincere, specific, and consistent for the full 30 days. There was a part of me that wanted this person to be miserable, sincerely praying specifically for the blessings of love, protection, respect, success, and happiness. For them was really hard at first, I will admit. But by day 14, I had relearned the power of prayer to change the one who was praying. I could clearly see that I needed to rethink the whole situation, but mostly to repent from my own pride and anger. By day 30, it had been transformative. Had my enemy changed? Not really. But the power of prayer and a good dose of repentance from my anger had liberated and changed me. The second example of these two universal needs I spoke about was that of Sister Peck. 
who was called to be Relief Society president in Riverton, Utah, where my husband and I purchased our first home. She was very young, in her early 20s, as most of us in the ward were, and she had just delivered her second child when she received her calling. Ours was a rapidly growing ward with a diverse and large number of sisters. Needless to say, she had a full plate. At times, Sister Peck shared her feelings of inadequacy, but more often she expressed her gratitude for the opportunity to serve each of us. But it was one of her counselors that told us something about Sister Peck I will never forget. Sister Peck prayed for each sister in our ward by name in their weekly presidency meetings. That amazed me. In Alma, we're invited to pray over our flocks. Sister Peck prayed over each member of her flock by name. If she could do that with each sister in our ward, couldn't I do more of that too? Think for a moment about those who you know pray for you, how it makes you feel. And how do you feel when you realize others whom you wouldn't expect to remember you in their prayers? Who could you and I pray for even more specifically? Now, the second principle that was illustrated by Enos in 1 and 4 is this one. Enos kneeled, and I kneeled down before my Maker. You don't need to be a dancer who studies the meaning of movement to recognize the significant symbolism of kneeling. This gesture of humility and reverence does so much for the one kneeling. During a season of my life where that became impossible because of a serious knee injury with its consequent multiple surgeries, I longed for the privilege to kneel again as I prayed, more than I longed to walk and to dance again. The first time my knee could bend enough to kneel, Tears of gratitude poured out then, and still do. The scriptures give us a number of references to the importance of kneeling, an attitude of worshipful reverence that it represents. Isaiah instructs, Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess before the Redeemer. Alma records that Ammon fell upon his knees and poured out his soul to God in thanksgiving. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we are admonished to offer a prayer upon our knees and in numerous other places in the scripture. We know this is a simple truth, to kneel down. Boyd K. Packer, in his Fall 2009 General Conference Address, said, Learn to pray. Pray often. Pray in your heart, in your mind. Pray on your knees. Prayer is your personal key to heaven. The lock is on your side of the veil. Now, having silent prayer and ceasing in our mind and heart is wise and worthwhile always, but striving to find a place to be alone, kneel down, and to pray out loud has made a difference for me. Praying out loud is an empowering commitment. It is one of the principles of prayer that we see Enos emulate. The third lesson from Enos is that Enos spoke out loud. And I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication. I did cry unto him, yea, and when the night came, I did still raise my voice high that it reached the heavens. This third principle, praying out loud as Enos did, must have had particular significance for him. I believe it may have helped him be ready to hear the responding voice of the Lord. And there came a voice unto me, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. And I, Enos, knew that God could not lie, wherefore my guilt was swept away.
Enos found forgiveness, increased faith and perspective as he prayed fervently on that day. He gained the desire to keep praying for his loved ones and the preservation of their sacred records. Eventually, he was even moved to pray for his enemies as he raised his voice up to heaven through the night. Praying out loud has had particular significance for me, too. Its active nature takes a different kind of consideration and energy than silent prayer. Speaking out loud while alone requires finding a place of solitude, a sanctuary, a sacred space. Out loud speaking slows down the tendency to rush a prayer. The time itself becomes part of the sacred process. Speaking out loud while praying alone has over my life been an active confirmation, a self-witnessing of my own faith in a loving Father in Heaven who is listening. It is certainly not always possible to pray out loud or in solitude, and we are given counsel to pray unceasingly. A silent prayer in our heart is always appropriate, but when your circumstances permit you to do so, I challenge you to consider saying your personal prayers out loud if you don't already do that, and to consider how that might make those prayers more meaningful. And how is it that we should speak in this solitary time of prayer? Using the same language of prayer we know shows reverence in public. Again, this reinforces our personal relationship to deity. It changes our prayers from simply a list of things we are thankful for and a list of requests to a more worshipful experience. My dance colleague Ed Austin's devotional address from May 2003 enlightens us on this subject. He reminded us what Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught us about the special language of reverence and respect. Elder Oaks asserted, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches its members to use special language in addressing prayers to our Father in Heaven. President Spencer W. Kimball also taught, In all our prayers, it is well to use the pronouns thee, thou, thy, and thine, instead of you, your, and yours, inasmuch as they have come to indicate respect. There are three beautiful prayers offered by the Savior during His earthly ministry and recorded in the scriptures. They are found in Matthew 6, 9-13, John 17, 1-26, and 3 Nephi 19, 20-23. They are models by which we can all emulate our Savior when He prayed. Finally, President Joseph Fielding Smith was clear when he said, The Father and the Son should always be honored in our prayers with the utmost humility and reverence. So far we have been addressing principles learned from Enos and other leaders of the Church about how to pray. Please consider with me now the privilege of praying itself. In his address entitled The Lifeline of Prayer, President Faust stated, Access to our Creator through our Savior is surely one of the great privileges and blessings of our life. I want to share a story about what discovering the notion of sincere personal prayer to a loving Father in Heaven, the kind of prayer we've been discussing today, did for a young Hindu woman in Hyderabad, India. First, I need to set the scene. In August 2001, I had the opportunity of traveling to India as artistic director of BYU's The Dancers' Company. While there, we performed and taught in several major cities. 
we had studied and prepared to be respectful guests by learning as much as we could about the culture and customs of the people of India before leaving Provo, but with a culture as ancient, diverse, and complex as India's, we were only moderately prepared and versed in the beliefs and social customs. I observed when I got there, in the people that I met, a consistent dedication to education and family. The people of India are well-read. I also saw great charity and spiritual qualities in these people, most of whom are Hindu. It was inspirational, one of the most marvelous experiences of my life. I'm so grateful I was able to share it, not with just the dancers, but with the other directors and my husband and my daughter who danced on the company that year. But while we were there, we met a very small number of wonderful Latter-day Saint missionaries, humanitarian service missionaries, and convert members. It's not economically or socially easy to convert from Hinduism to Mormonism. Not only are the theologies extremely different, but a person loses social status and is often cut off from their family by simply becoming a Christian. Again, I'm not expert about the complex social systems of India, but I can tell you that I witnessed a variety of circumstances wherein the separation of those from different castes was manifested. For example, at one of our first performances, I was sweeping up some rice that was left on the stage at the completion of a dance in which the soloist slowly drops rice from her hands during the dance. But some of the native Indians from backstage called to me to stop. They were very, very concerned. And then they cautioned, only the untouchables do that kind of menial labor. You should not be sweeping. Untouchables are members of a group considered below even the lowest social caste, or varna. I sweep all the time. It meant nothing to me, but to them it was of concern. I mentioned earlier a woman whose story I'm about to share. And this woman, Annapurna, came from the highest caste, or Varna. Now, I vividly remember the day I met Annapurna and our motorized rickshaw taxi ride together. Please forgive me just a little bit longer while I set the scene a bit more. These vehicles are basically a motor scooter with a buggy-like attachment that can carry about three passengers at a time. They're soft-sided, have no protection, or seat belts for the passengers. Because they're small and lightweight, the drivers often careen wildly through streets as they strive to get as many fares as possible in a day's work. Riding in these vehicles usually created heightened anxiety in me as I worried for my life. I'm even gripping the podium right now, remembering this. <sighs> and the lives of the BYU students riding in them with us. But there were times when we just simply had to ride in these rickshaws because our transportation choices were limited. Upon arriving at the airport in Hyderabad more than two hours late, Anna Purna, her husband, a new branch president, and their 11-month-old baby met us. They had helped arrange transportation for our small group that day as we hurried to get to the LDS church where we were scheduled to present a midweek youth fireside. I rode in a rickshaw with one of the dancers and Annapurna. Her husband and baby went in a small car with the other members of our group. We needed to hurry. After a few minutes of observing the rickshaw driver dodge and dart through busy traffic, I realized that watching the road really wasn't a good idea. Annapurna was a lovely hostess. Her English was very good, and as we bounced along, 
We exchange the usual courteous greetings shared by people who have just met. Then I became very curious. I asked her to share her conversion story and how she made the dramatic change from Hindu to Latter-day Saint. The spirit that engulfed us that late afternoon during our rickshaw ride was tangible. The atmosphere inside that little cubby in the back of that motor scooter changed. We were all unaware of the dangerous twists and turns, and we were completely drawn into her story. Annapurna came from a devout Hindu family. Her father, grandfather, and great-grandfathers for many generations were all Brahmin priests. Her brothers were expected to follow in the family tradition, and she and her sister were expected to marry young men from their own varna, or social caste, who would qualify to become Brahmin priests. Again, I am not expert on the practices of this religion, but as she explained it to me, she had spent much of her life memorizing and learning all of the rituals and sacred prayers, or Vedas, that were part of the practice of her religion. She said, I always felt like the many steps that had to be taken in order to reach deity were so complicated and took so long that I wished for an easier or better way. I yearned to access enlightenment, or what I know now as a loving Father in Heaven, more directly and immediately in times of need, but didn't know how and never shared my thoughts with anyone because I knew that kind of thinking was unacceptable in my family. When Annapurna was 17, her wonderful grandmother, the light of her life, died, and Annapurna's grief was immense. I desperately wanted to see my Dadima again and was struggling with accepting that she was gone. Imagining her essence going into another form just wasn't comforting me. I kept feeling like my grandmother was near. I wanted to believe that I could talk to her as I had known her, my Dadima. Annapurna yearned to pour out her heart in grief and find comfort or hope, but had no one who understood the way she was feeling. And then she was befriended by a member of the Church. She discovered that Mormons pray every day to a loving Father in Heaven, often several times a day. They don't have to attend a shrine, travel to a far distant temple, and follow a series of long, specific Vedas, offerings, and steps to reach God. He's always there, ready to listen and comfort. Annapurna wanted to know more about this way of praying. And she began to pray like a Mormon. And that was the beginning. She knew this was the answer she had been looking for all her life. She studied the life of Jesus Christ, read the Book of Mormon, and was taught the Gospel. She was baptized a couple of years later, but did not know how she was going to tell her family. Now the story really gets interesting. You may not remember, but Annapurna had a sister. This sister had attended school in another city, and they had been separated for a number of years. Like Annapurna, she had been devastated at their grandmother's death. In a country where less than 3% of the population is Christian, and in 2001, less than 5% of those Christians were LDS, the odds of two sisters meeting two different Mormons in two different cities within a month of each other are extremely low, but that is just what happened. Annapurna's sister was drawn to the LDS belief that families are forever. 
that through Jesus Christ and his gift of resurrection, she could not only see but be with her grandmother as she knew her again. Without the other sister knowing, each of them had been baptized within a short time of one another. I remember how Annapurna said that she told her sister, I have to tell you something very important, and I hope you will not hate me, she said. Her sister responded, I have to tell you something. (laughs) And it may mean that we will never see each other again. Each confessed at the same time, I've been baptized into the Mormon Church. (laughs) I met Annapurna only a few years after her baptism. She shared with me that most of her family ties had indeed been severed. She no longer had the privileges of the Brahmin caste in her social life. Everything in her life had changed. But she was so grateful to have found the truth of the gospel because of her lifelong desire and feeling that she could and should be able to communicate with God more directly. She discovered prayer. Our over 45-minute ride ended. But it had felt like we'd only been going for a few moments. The Spirit had been so strong and her testimony of prayer so powerful that time ceased to exist on that ride. I realized as I climbed out of that rickshaw that evening in front of the little building used as both chapel and recreation hall by the Hyderabad Saints that I had taken my personal knowledge of prayer for granted most of my life. Let's read the rest of the statement from President Faust's address. Access to our Creator through our Savior is surely one of the great privileges and blessings of our lives. I have learned from countless personal experiences that great is the power of prayer. No earthly authority can separate us from direct access to our Creator. There can never be a mechanical or electronic failure when we pray. There is no limit on the number of times or how long we can pray each day. There is no quota of how many needs we wish to pray for in each prayer. We do not need to go through secretaries or make an appointment to reach the throne of grace. He is reachable at any time and at any place. Ultimately, as President Kimball promised, there is a knowledge that our Father in Heaven wants each of us to have. And that is a personal knowledge that he hears and answers our prayers. In closing, I testify to you again that our Heavenly Father is intimately interested in hearing from us, that he is omnipresent and available to listen at all times. I also testify that as we sincerely pray unto the Father through our Savior Jesus Christ, we will be changed. I'm grateful for the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, for a living prophet, and for the guidance prayer provides. May we all more fully appreciate this privilege and commit ourselves to making our personal prayers more meaningful. Lastly, may I end on a personal note to you students here at BYU and to my family. Students, we the faculty love you. We pray for you, name by name, when possible and invoke the Lord's choicest blessings upon you. Thank you for reciprocating and praying for us. We feel your prayers. 
to my husband, children, and grandchildren, to all of my family. Please know that I'm particularly grateful for the answers to prayers that led me to you, Craig, my eternal companion, and that helped us guide our family as we have raised them. Thank you all for being here today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Connecting with Heaven. Marilyn W. Barrett gave her devotional entitled Earnest Prayer. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.